Welcome to Advancing the Agenda. I'm your host, Michael Abramson. Today, we will be continuing our series of interviewing candidates running in this November's midterm elections. Our guest today is Mark Gonzalves. He is the Republican nominee for U.S. Congress in the 7th District of Georgia. The 7th District is northeast of Atlanta in Gwinnett County, and it includes areas such as Peachtree Corners, Johns Creek, Duluth, Lawrenceville, Grayson, Snellville, Lilburn, and Norcross. I have invited Mark's opponent, Lucy McBath, to come on the show, and I will ask her the same questions which I ask Mark. Mark Gonzalves is the son of first-generation Americans. He has a BS degree in accounting, which has served him well during his many business ventures. Mark started his career in IT recruitment and later founded Integrity Software Resources Incorporated. After several years in business, he was recruited to become Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Adams Golf, a small golf club manufacturer. Within four years, he helped grow sales from $1 million to $90 million. The company was named by Inc. as the fourth fastest growing private company in the U.S. and shortly thereafter went public. In 2001, Mark and his wife Donna purchased a private buying club franchise and renamed it Direct Buy. This was before a Costco or Sam's Club was on nearly every corner. Mark developed a unique TV marketing plan that expanded the company network from 67 to 168 locations within four years. Direct Buy was sold to a private equity firm for $550 million, an increase in valuation of over $540 million during that time. After the company was sold, Mark became a real estate investor and, like many, learned some valuable lessons during the Great Recession of 2008 to 2009. More recently, Mark has taken special assignments in a number of companies in need of new vision and leadership. He served as CEO of the Hank Haney International Junior Golf Academy, directed the acquisition of Nature's Brands Incorporated, and also rebranded an innovative UK-based nutritional supplement company. Mark, welcome to Advancing the Agenda. Michael, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I want to start off with some general questions, and then we'll move into specific topics. And the first general question is a basic one, but I think a really important one, and that is, why did you decide to run for Congress? Well, the thing is, is uh, I never have aspired to be a politician. Uh, I've had a long career in business, building companies, growing companies, turning around companies, created a great number of jobs in that process. And the last thing that was on my mind was anything political. But back in 2019, I saw what was starting to happen to our country. I watched our uh, Congress take their oaths that early January of 2019. And we started learning about things that just were, for me, uh, shocking and quite unacceptable. Uh, things like the Green New Deal with $93 trillion in spending and uh, trying to retrofit every house and building by 2030 to be green compliant and doing away with planes and cows and uh, everything else. So that one I knew uh, I have an accounting degree, so numbers matter to me. And we were already so far in debt at that time. We were, what, 20, 
$22 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thinking about that burden onto our kids and our grandkids. Uh, then I watched the uh, New York State Legislature vote in late in two-term abortion. Uh, then I watched the governor from Virginia, uh, Northam at the time, talking about post-term abortion in that simulcast, uh, where he used a phrase that still haunts me to this day. He talked about uh, post-term abortion by saying, well, well, we'll keep the babies comfortable. And then, of course, he was in a yearbook picture the very next day after that radio simulcast, where he was either in a Ku Klux Klan outfit or he was in blackface and he admitted to being in it. And then suddenly the day after that, he no longer uh, felt that he was in the picture and he wasn't going to leave his office, although many people were asking for his resignation. And I just thought there's something seriously wrong with the direction of our country. I turned to my wife and I said to her, I said, Donna, uh, I know this is kind of coming out of the blue, but I really feel like I need to step forward. I need to run for U.S. Congress. And that's how it all started. So I didn't win that primary back in the 2020 race, uh, but here it is two years later, and I am the Republican nominee from the 7th Congressional District. I did not turn my back on the 7th District, although the new maps uh, make it a decidedly different district than it was in 2020. Mm -hmm. So that's how the whole process got started. Hmm. I, I hadn't realized that you had run before. Yeah, and you know, running the second time, uh, I, again, saw now a year into a new administration. And I turned to my wife a second time, Michael, and I said, Donna, I feel called to run again. And I know it's a difficult task. It, uh, it's not easy on you. It certainly uh, kept me from a business career for that period of time. Uh, and um, I want to know your input. And she said to me, she said, Mark, under this current administration, what I see happening, I feel more, more interested to see you run now than I did two years ago. So you have my full support. And that's how it started this time around. <laughs> what do you feel are your greatest strengths and qualifications to be the 7th District's Congressman? First off, I am a husband of 24 years now. Earlier this month, we celebrated our 24th anniversary, mm-hmm. and I am a father. Uh, my wife, Donna, and I are blessed with a 22-year-old daughter, and um, so I see it from a father's lens as well. And as I had mentioned, I've had my fair share of success in business. You know, one business uh, went public on the NASDAQ exchange. We were the fourth fastest growing company in North America on the Inc. fastest growing 500. As a matter of fact, after I arrived on the scene, that was uh, within four years. And then uh, another business, I uh, had a very big hand in architecting their growth. At the time I went there, it probably had a valuation of anywhere from, say, 10 to $12 million. And Five years later, it was sold to private equity for $550 million. So I know how to grow businesses. I know how to create jobs. Uh, but more importantly than that, my life's journey has allowed me to be a practitioner of good common sense. I do believe that I have a very strong courage of my convictions. I do have a moral compass. Uh, I do have a clear understanding of right and wrong. And I also, by the way, have a very good sense for unintended consequences. And I don't hear anybody ever really talk about this, but unintended consequences, something that sounds good on the surface, but nobody's looking downstream and saying, what are the potential unintended consequences of that decision? 
So that's something that I think is a bit unique that I do offer. And if you uh, talk to the, about me in the business community, they would tell you Mark's known for doing what he'll, he says he'll do and he gets the job done. So I would say that those are my best qualifications and, and my heart uh, and soul is really in this. I want to see America have a future for our kids. I don't want the American dream to become a nostalgic memory. And that's my concern. You know, we've had so many great men and women that have served our country to be able to preserve and protect the freedoms that are unique to America. And I talk about these freedoms constantly. And I think about them, some of them, by the way, giving the ultimate devotion to our country with their lives. And I think, gee, how disrespectful to their memory if we simply allow our American exceptionalism to disappear for the next generations. So that's a big, that's a big part of it. And you have an interesting perspective because you're, I guess you're technically, are you technically a first generation or a second generation American? Sec yeah, second generation. My family came through Ellis Island and, uh, you know, my father, uh, you know, it's interesting. His parents, uh, they worked in a factory. They died quite young, as a matter of fact. So he served in the Army Air Corps and then he was able to get to the United States Naval Academy. And for an immigrant family, I have to tell you, that was a very big deal. That was his American dream. And he was so proud, so proud of this country. We lost him about two and a half years ago. And I think about him constantly because, you know, he he taught me, well, he lived to 92. So he had a very long and productive life. Uh, and I just I think of all the lessons uh, that uh, he taught me and uh, not the least of which was the great pride that he had for America uh, because, you know, he also has lived a lot, had lived a lot of different places as well. So he knew what oppression looked like. He knew what socialism looked like. He knew what communism looked like. And he never wanted to see a return uh, to those environments on American soil. So, you know, he taught, he taught our family many great lessons and uh, he was a great, a great father. My mother's still hanging in there, by the way, she's 92 herself uh, as of earlier this month. So we're, uh, we're very proud that uh, she's still with us and still very sharp, very keen of mind. And, you know, she has her concerns about our country as well. So maybe uh, her son can uh, make a difference in Congress. And I know that uh, both, both parents would be very proud. I'm sure. Um, can you speak with me about your, your Democrat opponent, Lucy McBath? You know, it's a good question that you're asking, Michael. And I would like to focus on the positives. But in Lucy's case, we really do need to be able to discuss uh, her involvement in this race. It goes back to the fact that she is a congresswoman from the 6th Congressional District. Right. And she represented the 6th District, or will through the end of this year, for four years. So for four years, she said to the people of the 6th District, it was all about them. And then as soon as the new maps came out, and it became apparent that it was going to be difficult for her to maintain her position in Congress, she immediately pulled her stake out of the ground and moved it over to the 7th District, right? In politics, uh, that's known as district shopping. So she mm -hmm. shopped to what she felt was a more favorable district and turned her back on the people that she was there to represent. She was called out by Carolyn Bordeaux and her other challenger, Donna McLeod, in the Democrat primary for her district shopping. 
they were very, very offended by it. And, you know, for me, Carolyn Bordeaux, I have a uh, degree of empathy for Carolyn because she did something in the 2020 election that no other Democrat did. She took a red seat and that seat had been red for 26 years under Bob Barr and then John Linder and Rob Woodall after that. And she turned it blue. She was the only one that took a red seat and turned it blue in the 2020 election. And her reward? She was kicked to the curb in deference to Lucy McBath. And I really do feel that that's very, very, very wrong. So she doesn't live in the district. She lives very far away from the 7th district. She has no ties to our district. Lucy. Lucy, Lucy, correct. Right. And then, then now we can look back. And of course, Carolyn was talking about her failed voting record, and rightfully so. And you look back on those four years and you say, okay, what does it really look like? Well, most recently, she's a rubber stamp for the Biden administration, 100%, 100% with Nancy Pelosi, virtually 100% with AOC and the squad. She wouldn't even respect the district, our new 7th district, with appearing in any of the three debates that we had in the district. Mm-hmm. I appeared by myself. Can you imagine? Imagine a 30-year institution, the Atlanta Press Club, right, right. with their young Loudermilk debate series on Georgia public broadcasting. And she didn't even have the courtesy to even let him know she wasn't showing up. So a couple of Sundays ago, I was at the, at the studios and I took my debate solo with an empty lectern next to me. Can you imagine to me, to me, a debate is like a job interview and the employer is the voter, right? Right. She she's never represented a single soul in Gwinnett County. So you think, okay, well, here's her opportunity to make her positions known and fight for their uh, support and their vote. And she did the exact opposite. So she believes that she's entitled to the job without the interview. And those debates are, are great ways for people to learn about the candidates. It's not like they're watching this 30 or 45 second highly, highly put together commercial. It's they're really learning about the candidates when they speak. Exactly. See how, you know, and it was a very unusual situation for me as a candidate because it was just nonstop questions to me. Right. Normally in a debate, you have an opportunity to, uh, you know, feed off the energy of your opponent, be able to collect your thoughts as your opponent is answering. So it was a very unusual, it was a very unusual set of circumstances. In the end, there's a fundamental divide between her and I. She believes in government coercion. She believes government is the answer for everything. That's why she has never met a bill that has spending or higher taxes that she wasn't in favor of. My position, on the other hand, is a belief in self-determination. I believe in smaller government, not larger government. So, when you look at the issues and you think, okay, big government spending, higher taxes, uh, redistribution schemes, uh, defunding the police, open borders, uh, dismissing parents' rights in schools, uh, these are big differences. Those are positions that she would hold. I'm on the exact opposite side of that coin. So I think that gets back to the common sense. My accounting degree brings fiscal uh, responsibility to the picture. And, you know, we used to be the party, right, of fiscal responsibility and smaller government. We need to return to those tenants uh, for the for the good of the American people and certainly for the good of the people of Georgia's 7th District. 
Let's move to some specific topics. And the first are the economy and inflation. So first of all, as far as an economy, when uh, World War II ended, think about this. We represented less than 5% of the world's population, but yet we controlled well north of 50% of the world's wealth. And that has changed. We used to be the one that provided the world's credit. Now we go hat in hand, having them take our debt. Isn't it an interesting reversal in such a short period of time? So our economy used to be that that's what created us as a superpower. And now we've got China right there with us. I mean, it's amazing to me how we've allowed China to become such a dominant player. But I know you want to focus on inflation. And to me, it all starts with energy independence. Think about it. The first day on the job in this administration, Joe Biden signed an executive order that shut down our Keystone Pipeline. It put uh, shackles around our coal and fracking industries. And we went from energy independence and $2 gas to energy dependence, $3 plus gas. And now we're doing business with adversaries, people who don't like us. We're buying, we're buying oil from Russia at this point fueling their own war machine. Every time we go to the pump, I hope people realize that, that we're actually paying for Putin's war machine every time we put gas in our car. That's absolutely incredible to me. So that one stroke of the pen on the first day of the job started this process. And then the unlimited spending by this administration, inflation, when you inflate the money supply, by definition, it creates inflation. And under the previous administration, we did a great job of being able to create an environment where jobs and manufacturing were, were coming back to America, right? Part of it was because of what we did with the corporate income tax. But we had a real desire to bring those jobs back. And we started to rebuild our middle class by doing that. And of course, in the last couple of years, we've completely reversed that. We've decimated our middle class. We've got uh, national security, uh, security issues by having a supply chain that, again, is dependent on foreign adversaries to provide us various parts that go into products that are part of our national security interests. That's wrong. We've got to bring these jobs back. We've got to rebuild our middle class. And to me, uh, we, we have to do whatever we can to not embolden our enemies to be our business partners. Let me put it that way. So it sounds like your priorities are, are number one to, to go back to energy independence more. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a key. That's really a key because, it, I mean, look what we've done with our strategic petroleum reserves, Michael. It's at a low that we haven't seen since 1984. Amazing. And, and, and we're at a time of incredible unrest globally, a geopolitical theater that we haven't seen in quite some time or ever when you consider the ramifications of what, it, what could happen in a nuclear age. So energy independence, bringing vital in, uh, industries back to America, rebuilding our middle class, these are things that I think are key to refueling our economy.
Let's move to a topic which is adjacent to the economy, and that topic is taxation. On your website, it states that you're a proponent of the fair tax. What is the fair tax and why do you support it? The fair tax is a consumption tax, which means when you uh, buy something, right, you're a consumer and you're going to pay a tax on that. So that tax, right now we pay a sales tax, right? That would in essence be a consumption tax. So this would be a federal tax that is in lieu of the IRS. So we would eliminate the IRS and we would put into place this fair tax, which was founded right here in the seventh district with Bob Barr at the time. And then John Linder carried the torch forward in Congress in the seventh district. And then uh, Rob Woodall uh, was the last congressman that gave it attention in Congress. So from my perspective, it eliminates the IRS, which has become a weaponized bureaucracy. I mean, look what's gone on with the Inflation Reduction Act, adding 87,000 new IRS agents armed, 5 million rounds of ammunition tucked into that bill, by the way. Imagine the scale of the IRS. Now they'd have more employees in the Pentagon, the State Department, the FBI, and our Border Patrol combined. So we could take care of shrinking our federal government be able to have Americans all participate in the funding of their own national treasury. And there is a prebate clause in there. The prebate clause allows those that are less fortunate to not, uh, not have an undue burden of the tax. So it's a provision that allows uh, those to be looked after. That's how I would say that. And I'm, an, I'm in very much favor of this because uh, what we've done with the IRS, a code that's 80,000 pages long, I have an accounting degree. So so for me, I look at it where, okay, you take your taxes, you took you take your taxes to five IR, uh, to uh, five people to, to uh, do your taxes. You're going to end up with five different results. That's how complicated the tax code actually is. So that's wrong. It should be it should be simplified. The fair tax is a simple, fair, solution that would literally make our economy just accelerate like you cannot imagine. It would free up so much capital that it would ignite our economy to a growth spurt that we, me personally, you know, we saw a big growth spurt under the previous administration. I think it would go much greater than that. Our next topic is crime. Crime is a problem in the 7th District in Atlanta and throughout America. As Congressman, what would be your solution to solving America's crime epidemic? Well, first, I'm going to start at a global level. We can no longer accept crime without consequence. Crime without consequence. That seems to be where we're heading in this country. My opponent, by the way, she's on the record of supporting defunding the police in this climate of escalating crime. For me, that's a major lack in judgment. Uh, I've received endorsements, by the way, Michael, from the Police Bene uh, Benevolent Association, uh, our beloved 24-year Gwinnett uh, Sheriff Butch Conway, who retired a couple of years ago, has uh, supported my campaign, the Fraternal Order of Police, the former acting director of ICE, Tom Holman. So they know that I'm a very strong supporter of law enforcement, defending, defending 
law enforcement, enforcement, not abandoning them in our greatest time of need. There's an assault on police right now. Morale's at an all time low. I go and I talk to officers and, you know, it's funny when I go over, I don't tell them I'm a candidate for U.S. Congress. I go over as a citizen and I just say, I just want you to know, I really appreciate your service. I know it takes great courage right now to do this work. And I want you to also know that there's a whole army of people right behind me that feel the same way. They may never knock on your window, but they all feel it too. And I, I can tell you that the, the responses that I get from that simple gesture, it's, it's incredible. And you have conversations. I had one not that long ago in the uh, parking lot of the bank, right? Knocked on the officer's window. He zipped it down and I thanked him for his service. And uh, we had a great chat. I said, gee, how long have you been in the force? This was a Gwinnett County officer. He says, uh, I've been in the force for eight years. I said, wow. I said, that's terrific. I said, it sounds like you found your career. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, I don't think so. He says, I have a family too. I'll never forget that. I have a family too. What he was saying is this a dangerous deal out there. They feel like they're target practice. When I was a kid, the police were hands off. Everyone knew it. The criminals knew it. And now we've had 250 officers shot this year. Literally becoming target practice. So we've got to reverse this. We've got to be able to have the back of law enforcement. And I do hear the people that say, well, there's some bad actors in law enforcement. And you know what? I would agree with that. Just like there's bad doctors and there's bad attorneys, there's bad business people, there's bad teachers, there's bad everything. No, no industry is perfect. But when you consider what they do to keep law and order and peace in our neighborhoods and communities, for someone to vilify police like they do. Um, and then the funny part is, is if they were in harm's way, what would be the first thing that they would do? They would call the police. So these weak DAs, the cashless bail, courts that are overloaded because of the pandemic so that officers don't, don't even book people anymore. If you talk to them, you get a real education. Yeah. And I'm telling you, a functioning society cannot function well without a strong presence of law enforcement. So, uh, and, and, you know, you look at Atlanta, right? Atlanta now has more crime than Chicago. People are like, no, Mark, that's not true. I'd go look it up, look it up. That's how unsafe it is. And of course it's moving straight up out of the city into our suburb suburbs here that make up the seventh congressional district. People, people are very, very concerned. So we've got to we've got to reverse this. And it means getting tough on crime. I remember as a kid when New York had a brutal crime problem. Of course, they've returned back to that same situation today. And then Mayor Giuliani came into the picture. He was tough on crime and it turned around. Virtually overnight, it was amazing how much that that city changed. So anyone that doesn't think that we can do this, I would say there's a perfect example of us doing it. We had a will to do it in New York. People had had enough and they've had enough now again. And we're having enough in the 7th Congressional District. Let's switch topics to education 
parental involvement in schools, and the teaching of critical race theory. What are your views on these issues? Well, my father, after he graduated the Naval Academy, he went into teaching. So this one, this one is near and dear to my heart for sure. Uh, first off, at a high level, he was a college professor, ultimately the dean of engineering. And uh, a lot of my beliefs come from living in that environment. And he was a very, very strong proponent that not all kids should go to college. He thought that many should go to a trade school. They should become an apprentice, uh, maybe smart, uh, start a small business uh, of their own. That would have suited them much better than taking time to pursue a college degree that they were not going to use and create debt that they might not be able to pay for an awful long time. So that, that was the environment, if you will, that I grew up in. Now let's bring it down to K through 12. And I, I'll start with the belief that our children, their innocence, Michael, it's paramount. And it is under assault right now. With what we're bringing into these schools in the name of education, I talk to parents all day long. And what they want is they want the basics back in school reading and writing and math and science and language and, and uh, civics. These are the things that they want, not an indoctrination of their children into theories like CR CRT. So we have to stop the infiltration of pornography into the libraries, uh, age-inappropriate materials. We have to protect our children's right to innocence. And I'll give you an example as far as a compare and contrast to my opponent, right? She voted no recently, just a few weeks ago, to legislation that would require parental consent prior to a school providing mental health services related to sexual orientation or gender identity to their child. She's literally at war with parents and parental rights. She thinks she knows more about what's good for, for your kids than you do. And I fundamentally disagree with that. You saw what happened yesterday with the data that was released regarding student proficiency. Fourth graders, their math proficiency, 36%. Reading at 33%. Eighth, gra eighth graders, it's even worse. 26% proficiency in math, 31% proficiency in reading. How are we going to build a world-class future for our kids if we're not giving them the tools to be able to contribute to society as they move into adulthood. So we've got to stop the nonsense and we've got to get back to the basics. And by the way, while we're talking about all this nonsense, China is educating their kids six days a week on the topics that I just mentioned earlier. Yeah, when you see those test scores, it makes you realize just how, what a disservice our country is doing to, the, to that generation. It's incredible, you know, and, and, and how many of these kids are on pharmaceuticals? It's unbelievable to me. If a teacher has any sort of a challenge with a child, the first thing is, well, we need to put them on an antidepressant. Wow. So we've medicated our kids, turning them into a customer of Big Pharma for life. Is this what we want? I don't think that that was God's design. So education to me, you know, the, I mentioned getting rid of the IRS. We need to also abolish the Department of Education. 
We spend $102 billion on the Department of Education in the 2022 budget. And now we've created this giant bureaucracy that was founded, I believe, my memory is right, 1973, when we were the envy of the world educationally, Michael. Countries from around the world came to America to learn about our best practices in education so they could take those best practices back to their countries, be able to educate their children, to be able to make their societies and their countries more prosperous. And what did we do? We completely abandoned the formula that created this educational environment that was the envy of the world. So instead, what we did is we started to go from top down instead of from bottom up. So all the good ideas used to be incubated at the local level, right? So the school would try something and they got either good results, mediocre results, or, or terrible results. Now, of course, the good and exceptional results moved out across the, the school districts and across the country. So it was proven in that manner. Now what we do is we have people with lots of initials next to their names pushing stuff down from Washington. That's not the formula. We've got to go back to going to the local level again. That is how we will rebuild education. An issue related to education is masks in schools. How do you feel that that situation was handled? Yeah, well, the mask mandate, it's very interesting. There are certain things, Michael, that happen in a campaign that you'll never forget. And for me, it all started uh, early in the campaign. It was still the winter. And I received a donation from a person that I didn't recognize their name. And as I am inclined to do with every donation, I called that person back. It was a Friday night. And she answered the phone and I thanked her for her generosity. And I said, hey, if you don't mind me asking, how did you even find out about me? And she said, well, she said it was my neighbor. She said, uh, Mark is your type of person. I think you're going to really, really like this guy. Why don't you do some homework? So she said, I went over to the website. And the first thing I saw was your position on no mask mandates for our children. She said, and I'm a mother of four. Two children are in our public schools, and I'm watching over the last two years my kids being deeply affected both emotionally and developmentally because of these masks. She says, so you really got me with that. I said, well, I said, uh, let me ask you a question. She said, sure. I said, uh, I do feel strongly, as you know, but what are we going to do about it? And she said, well, she said, next Friday. Me and some of my fellow moms, we're going to be on the sidewalk and we're going to get our voices heard before school. As the, as the students are coming in, the, the um, uh, families are driving their kids to school. I said, well, I said, uh, what time are you going to be there? So she told me, I said, I said, 845. I said, okay. I said, I'll, I'll be there. And um, she said, wow, really? I said, yeah. I said, but can I offer a piece of advice? She said, sure. I said, are you only planning on going on the Friday? She said, well, that was our intention. I said, well, here's the thing. You're going to go on Friday. People are going to see you there. And then they're going to show up to school on Monday and you're not going to be there. And everybody's going to think it was one and done. It was kind of a lark and you're really not going to get any traction. I said, so I think you might want to consider going each day until the masks come off our kids because they were already off all of the other counties other than Gwinnett County that surrounded Gwinnett County, right? 
So there was no basis in science for the kids to not have to, to still have the mask on. So she said, you know, I like your plan. I said, well, when can we start? She said, how about Wednesday? <laughs> so Michael, I show up on Wednesday and my wife actually went with me as well. And we had our posters and uh, I'm on the sidewalk with the other mothers. There were probably about 18 of us all told. Car pulls up to the crossing guard. The car is perpendicular to me, five feet away. The mother's driving and there's the young son in the passenger seat. He's a middle schooler, right? This was in, in um, Peachtree Corners, middle schooler. Yeah, I can see him looking through the window. He's looking me up and down. He's looking at my poster. He zips the window down. He sticks his head out. He goes, thanks for fighting for me. I, I said, you're worth fighting for. You're worth fighting for. I'll never forget that kid. And, you know, I'm not saying that me and the other uh, moms, and there were a couple of fathers uh, that constantly went to that sidewalk until those masks came off. I'm not saying that we were the reason why they came off. But I am telling you, I feel very fortunate to be able to have supported the mothers in that way. because. I'm very familiar. I spent a long time in health and wellness as owning companies, CEO. I know the topic well. And what we did to our children was not the appropriate course. So thankfully, we're now COVID, uh, hopefully soon to be uh, well behind us. Hopefully it doesn't have a new iteration of some kind. And um, hopefully we've learned some very valuable lessons about uh choices and freedom and the protection of our kids and their ability to learn. Our next topic is immigration. What are your thoughts on the immigration issue? This is a big topic. First of all, I think we'd all agree that immigration has helped fuel our economic engine and has helped make us a more vibrant and prosperous country. But we and we alone should decide who comes into our country and who does not. I've said it for years now. Every sovereign nation has the right, I would argue it's an obligation to its citizens to secure their borders and enforce their immigration law because a sovereign nation can't remain sovereign absent secure borders. And a country that doesn't secure its borders, it, it can't secure its destiny for its future generations. So this is really what's at stake. And under the Biden administration, you, let's go back all the way to when he was on the campaign trail during the debates. He was literally waving illegal immigration to come across our border. And they have in droves, we're talking uh, millions of illegal immigrants now that are in our country. Imagine the assault that that represents to America. We've brought uh, lethal fentanyl across the border as well as other lethal drugs. We've killed over 100,000 Americans this past year alone because of the drugs. We've got sex and human trafficking coming across that border. We have gang members coming across that border. We have known terrorists on the terrorist watch list coming across that border. We have people from 160 countries from around the world coming across that border. And the taxpayers are the ones that have to figure out a way to foot the bill when you're $31 trillion in debt in the middle of a recession, of an inflationary spiral that we haven't seen for 40 years, 
So the first thing we have to do is we have to secure our southern border. That's number one. And from my perspective, you've got the cartels now running the southern border. Can you imagine? We're going to bring 87,000 87, new IRS agents, but not a single new border patrol agent. You talk to border patrol, they'll tell you the morale, the, the morale down there, all time low, people leaving left and right. They're getting no support from this administration. We've got a president who's never even been to the border. My opponent rates an F minus on immigration. If you go to Numbers USA, you'll see it. You can't get a lower rating. That's an absolute zero, a zero rating, anything to do with immigration. So she wants a wide open border. You know that we have more illegal immigrants in the state of Georgia than a border state, Arizona. We have more illegal immigrants in, in Georgia than we have green card holders. This is wrong. It comes at an incredible expense, about $3 billion to the Georgian taxpayers. So this is a big burden, a very big burden. And I'm with our Hispanic communities, our Asian Pacific communities, people that have come into this country more recently. And they want to know that as a party, we're strong in the sense of our stance on being pro-family, pro that we're strong for good schools for our kids to have more opportunity, a better education to create those opportunities, that we're strong for small business because many of them have small businesses or work in a small business. They want to know that we're the ones that want to stop the crime coming in. And guess what? When you've talked about that, including pro-life, by the way, when you go down that list of those unifying positions, they really want to know that me as a congressman, that I want a secure border. They don't want people taking their jobs. They don't want people suppressing their incomes. But we, but we uh, have done that in the last two years under this administration. We had done such a good job of fixing a lot of the problems on that border with the previous administration, and it's completely reversed. And the people are done. They want this addressed. And we have a, a, a president who's MIA on this topic. And what would your solution be? Well, first of all, we have to secure the border. We have to be able to enforce our immigration law. And that's not what we're doing. I get, I get interviewed a lot and people go, well, so Mark, what would you do to reform immigration? I said, time out for a second. Before we even have a conversation about reforming our immigration law, we have to start to follow the law that's on the books. Why would any American, including those in the 7th Congressional District, have any faith in us if we, not, if we don't start with the current law, why would they believe that we're suddenly going to enforce the new one when we're not enforcing the current one? So we start there. We start to enforce the law that's on the books and we support border patrol. You know, in that Inflation Reduction Act, we had actually proposed 30 plus thousand border patrol agents. We had zero in that bill. We didn't get a single one but we have 87,000 new IRS agents. So you have to start by following the law. 
Our American uh, public uh, expects that, deserves that from us. And this comes back to an expression that you used earlier in the interview, and that was crime without consequences. Exactly right. And you look at the drugs that flow in, right? The majority of the drugs come through Atlanta. Right? It's hard to believe, right, as big a country as we are, that we would be the hub. Hmm. That we would be the hub. And of course, where there's drugs, there's crime. Where right. there's drugs, there's there's um, a tragedy. I can give you a perfect example. I have a friend of mine who lives in, in Norcross, right? Or, uh, uh, yeah. So he lives there. He came to this country from Lebanon 38 years ago, had 200 bucks in his pocket. He built a very successful career in construction. Very, very successful, right? He, I hadn't seen him in a little bit because of the campaign. He called me up a couple months ago. He said, hey, Mark, why don't you come over for a, a morning cup of coffee? His name's Tony. I said, sure. So I went over to the house and uh, we're having the coffee. And after a little while of, you know, just the chit chat, he says, will you follow me in the living room? I said, uh, sure, Tony. Thought it was kind of an odd question, but I certainly agreed to it. I walk in the living room, Michael. There's a six foot high, five foot wide poster board with pictures of his 15 year old daughter who died of a, f- a fentanyl intervention. I know this family. I've had dinner with them. The girl's not a drug user. She died of fentanyl. And that father is crushed. His life will never be the same. And that young lady will never contribute to our society like she had the capability of. That's a real tragedy. That tragedy happened because of that southern border being wide open. And, you know, my opponent, you know, swinging back on the IRS agents, isn't it ironic, right? Her cause, Celebra, is to be able to take your guns from you, your Second Amendment rights, But yet she doesn't have a problem voting for 87,000 new armed IRS agents. Isn't that uh, hypocrisy at work? So she wants them to have guns, but she doesn't want you to. She doesn't want you to protect your family. She doesn't want you to protect your your property. She doesn't want you to protect your neighborhood or your community. So and that that border, that's a a story I'll never forget. That's a tragic story. Um, It's tragic. Would you could you share a little bit more about what she had taken and what maybe parents should be on the lookout for. I, I think it's w- one of those things where, you know, she, she was um, new to being 15 years old. She had just turned 15. Huh. So I just think she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, um, and unfortunately for her, it was her last, uh, her last time. And I'll tell you that father, um, yeah. And he's like, Mark, what can I do? What can I do? Mm-hmm. I said, well, Tony, one of the things you can do, and I'll try to help any way I can, is you need to bring this conversation forward mm-hmm. for other for other parents to hear. Because, you know, your daughter goes out with a girlfriend and she never comes home. It's just tragic. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, I know that with with Halloween coming up, there's been discussion on the news about how the cartels are are putting out drugs that look like candy, and it's it's amazing that the, that's the world that we live in now. It, 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 Michael, it's incredible. It's incredible. It looks like it looks like a sweet tart, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then they have the chunks that look like chalk to the kids. And you don't, you don't need to be, a, you know, taking a drug. You just, you just need to have exposure. It goes right through your skin. Right. So this is a lethal, lethal, lethal drug. Yet this administration doesn't seem to care. It doesn't seem to care. And I, and I tell you, people are outraged now. I, I think that this is what's fueling this massive increase in the vote counts from four years ago, the last midterm. We're up 211%, I understand. That's incredible to me. Mm-hmm. And it's because people have had enough. They know that this administration is a failed administration. They know that they're one election away from literally becoming a one-party state in America. They know that their freedoms are being vaporized right in front of their eyes. And I talk about freedom constantly. And I'll tell you, a lot of times there'll be someone that is new to America and they'll come over to me and they'll say, Mark, when you were going through freedom, all I can tell you is you hit me right between the eyes because what I left is now what I'm seeing in America. And it scares me to no end to think that America could fall like my last country. Mm-hmm. It's very sobering, those conversations. Believe me, they're, they're incredible. You have people from, from Cuba, from Venezuela, from the former Soviet Union, from China. I had one guy, he came from North Korea. I said, wow. I said, how were you able to get out of North Korea? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an incredible story in its own right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So they know. And, uh, you know, Reagan said it best. We're one generation away from losing these freedoms. And if we do, there's no other place for us to go. And look what we've done with our freedom of speech as an example. To me, it's a cornerstone because America has always been a battle of ideas, Michael. May the best idea win. And now what we do is we put one idea forward and the opposition, we censor that idea. We ban that idea to the deference of the other. So it performs now in a vacuum. It's completely un-American and it's going to destroy our representative republic over time. And by the way, you got 250 plus thousand conservative voices being banned on social media. If the roles were reversed and it were progressive and liberal voices being banned to the deference of conservative views only, I would be arguing with the same vigor that I'm arguing right now for a return to true, full, free speech in this country. Our last topic is term limits. You state on your website that you are a proponent of them. Could you please expand on this position? Term limits is a must because it would get us back to what our founding fathers intended. Our founding fathers never intended politics to be a career. So what I when I talk with groups, I say, listen, I've never aspired to be a politician, but I do have a burning desire to be your representative, your true servant in Washington, D.C., just like the founding fathers had in mind. And as a representative, you're there to get the job done for the people. And then you turn the baton over to the next person in line that has the same enthusiasms to help the citizenry of their districts or their states or the country for that matter. That's how I think we've got to get back to a better functioning government, because we all know that Congress is a broken institution. 
And the only way we're going to fix it is if we start to, to change the kind of people we send to it. And that means no more career politicians. So term limits eliminate the career politician. And it would also eliminate the power hold that those career politicians have over others in Congress, literally dangling carrots in front of them. Oh, you want this great committee assignment? Well, you know, you got to step in line for this and that. So people compromise on their convictions, which never ends well. Mm -hmm. So this is the mess that we're in. Term limits can have a big, big part of it. And, you know, uh, I was on a show not that long ago and the person was, you know, ridiculing me. They're like, Mark, that'll never get passed. Congress isn't going to vote themselves out of a job. I said, I understand that. I said, I've given it a lot of thought, as a matter of fact. And I think that the way that we could get Congress to do the right thing is that we create legislation that exempts current Congress. So they could do the right thing without infringing on their own continued pursuit of their position in Congress. Now, a lot of these people are very old now. We've got one that's 88. We've got others that are in their 80s. So they're not going to be long anyway. So we create an environment that over time, now the legislation is now being used by every member of Congress. I think that that could be a very, very powerful thing. That's better than nothing. And you know, the other argument against term limits is, well, Mark, this is the other thing I hear out there, Michael, is we already have term limits. We vote them out of office. Well, the data clearly suggests otherwise. You can go back and the data I found went all the way back to 1964. So that was a presidential year. And then every two years, midterm presidential, midterm presidential going forward, all the way to 2018. I did this research when I ran in 2020. And here's what, here's what the findings are. The worst performing year for an incumbent in Congress, in the House, the incumbent still won 85% of the time. The best performing year, incumbents won 98% of the time. So if anybody thinks that they're voting them out of office, the data clearly suggests otherwise. So how can you win 85% on at the worst, 98% on the high end, and have an approval rating lower than a used car salesman? How is that possible? It's because a sitting member of Congress has a lot going for them. They have big idea in their districts. They have the ability to fundraise much better than usually the person who is the challenger. And of course, they have access to power. So when you add that all up, that's a winning formula that's very hard to overcome. That's why we've created career politicians. So also, besides just term limits, we need campaign finance reform as part of this as well. Yeah, these incumbents, they also have the, the campaign infrastructure. And that's a very good point as well. A very good point. And, you know, two years, we could talk about that within the construct of term limits. Is that the, is that the right term as far as a uh, member of the U.S. House of Representatives? So picture me. I walk in day one. I want to become the best legislator that the 7th Congressional District has ever seen. But at the beginning, I need to learn how to actually do that, just like I've had to learn how to be exceptional at every other post that I've had in my professional career. But instead of putting my 100% focus on that, 50% of my time goes to my own reelection mm -hmm. right off the bat, pressure from my own party. 
and the Democrats the same. That's wrong. That's wrong. So what should the number be? I think maybe we model it after the presidency, two four-year terms, right? So mm-hmm. that way a person could focus in, do the work of the people, be highly focused on being able to learn how to do it well, and then there's still plenty of time to be able to run a re-election campaign. That would be much fairer. And by the way, it gives the donors a breather too. Imagine going to the donor class every two years and saying, pony up again, pony up again. You briefly mentioned campaign finance reform. Uh, that's a that's a very interesting topic. We see the just hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars being spent. And it's just right. eye-popping and amazing and you can't get away from the TV or the computer or the radio or a billboard without seeing right. some political ad. It's incredible. I would model it more like what we do in professional sports leagues, right? Where you have, in essence, a salary cap. Huh. You say, okay, this is the salary cap. Right. And everybody can uh, raise money up to that salary cap. I would love to see dark money disappear from these campaigns. Uh, and we make it a very fair playing field. So the the candidates, my opponent's a perfect example. She hasn't been anywhere in the district. She hasn't campaigned in the district. I don't know if she knows where the district is given where she lives. She never did a single debate. I don't know how she thinks that she can be a great representative of the the people of the 7th district when she doesn't know the people of the 7th district. On the other hand, I've done 350 plus events this year. I'm everywhere spending time with all types of people within our seventh district. Sounds like you've met everybody in the district. Well, you know, it's a big district, right? The district today is 785,000 people approximately. The seventh district is 498,000 registered voters. Gives you an idea, right? It's a big district. So if you're never going to be there and you're just going to rely on a mailer in the mailbox and a social media ad and television commercials, and um, text messages, I don't know how you could really say that you really know the heartbeat of the 7th District. I live in the 7th District. I have business interests in the 7th District. Not all districts are the same. Right. So uh, I feel like campaign finance reform would really, really help the process, Michael. And, uh, you know, when you, like I said earlier, when you have a favorability rating lower than a used car salesman, we got to have ideas that come forward and we have to implement the best ideas to reverse this. Uh, we're 31 trillion in debt. It's clearly broken. Our well, kids are counting on us. You know, there's a reason why we venerate the greatest generation. And I just pray that at some point our kids can look at my generation and be able to say, yeah, they didn't get off to the greatest start in the world, but you know what? They righted the ship before it was too late. To close the interview, can you tell listeners how to get involved in your campaign? First of all, we're down the home stretch, right? Uh, November 8th is coming at us very quickly. The, the best way, there's a, a number of different ways. Uh, certainly, financial support does help. Uh, the website does a very good job of articulating my uh, views on the issues, but there's also a way to donate if a person feels inclined to do that. That's markforgeorgia.com, Mark. F-O-R, we do spell out the word for, and we do spell out Georgia. Markforgeorgia.com. And I'll, and then, I'll, uh, link they, that, I'll link that in the episode description of the podcast. Okay, that's great. And then 
they can reach out to us and they can uh, help with uh, volunteering. You know, we still are doing a lot of uh, door knocking in the various uh, precincts within the district. We're doing a lot of outbound phone calling. Uh, we've got uh, lots of opportunities for people to engage, you know, uh, road signs and yard signs that are uh, deployed. We've deployed thousands of them, but uh, there's more that can be deployed. So there's lots of different ways. And the, and the biggest thing is when someone feels passionate about my candidacy for Congress and they really do uh, have a desire to see me serve their interests, the best thing they can do is to take out their phone and go through their contact uh, contacts and reach out to those people, whether it's by phone or by text. Uh, they can go in their email, do the same thing, reach out to them and say, hey, I've done my homework. I know the candidate. I know what he stands for. I think that he's right for our, our district. I think he's right for the Times. Here's his website. Here's his phone number. Reach out to him. He'll, he'll impress you. And that makes a big difference, a big, big difference, because it is a big dis uh, district and not everyone in the district knows uh, the candidates, including me. So uh, it's a way that we're able to get our, our message known by others. And, and go out and vote. And go out and vote. And, you know, I, I've said it from the beginning. Do your homework. I met a young man uh, from New York here in Georgia now named Aaron last night. And. He said, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing my homework. I said, Aaron, that's awesome. I said, whether you vote for me or you vote for my opponent or you take a pass on my race, the fact that you're doing homework, that's incredible. And I admire you for it. I do believe it's a real responsibility because we are a government by the consent of the governed, of, for, and by the people. But the people need to do their due diligence to be able to get the best government that they could possibly have representing them. Uh, it's not that you just walk in nilly willy. I think you really should invest time in energy. So I'm, I admire anyone that's willing to do that. And I try to answer every single phone call. And if I can't get to it, I return every single call because I owe it to them as their representative. It breaks my heart when I hear people tell me, Mark, I've sent countless emails. I've made countless attempts, countless phone calls. I can't get my I can't get my congressperson on the phone. I can't get my congressperson to respond. To me, that's a abdication of their responsibility to the citizens that they're supposed to represent. Well, I think this interview is a great way for people to, to do their homework and learn about you. And I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity that you've created this forum for people to get to know the candidates better. Nobody has all the answers, Michael, right? But it's what's in a person's heart. What, uh, what fuels them? What's their purpose? And I would just like to feel that people who know me, they know that my intentions are honorable. I'm a person who will do the due diligence to make good decisions, that I'm not easily influenced, that I do have a compass that guides me. And I really do have a deep, deep love for this country. And I want to be able to pass on the greatness to our next generations. So I appreciate you giving me a, a forum to communicate some of my views. Well, thanks again. And I look forward to speaking with everyone next time on Advancing the Agenda.